Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome a show business renaissance man who has produced movies, television shows, and Broadway and off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway stage productions. He's served as an indie film distributor, a major studio executive, a radio talk show host, a documentarian, and an exhibitor. He's had more adventures in show business than LeBron James has had three-pointers. And now he's the author of an enormously entertaining autobiography. It's entitled, Try Not to Hold It Against Me, A Producer's Life. Let's welcome Julian Schlossberg. Hi, Julian. Hi, Steve. Wow, that's quite, I'm really kind of interested that I did all those things. <laughs> the only thing I left out of your credits is you never did catering. Any particular reason why? I don't cook well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, you know, uh, I, I read your book and for everybody listening, uh, Try Not to Hold It Against Me is a terrific, almost um, epic adventure of Julian's involvement in film and theater and it was very interesting for me, too, because I, I'm not a theater person. I'm an L.A. person. And by by normal uh, standards, L.A. people are not necessarily theater people. I think that East Coasters have a distinct advantage over West Coasters because you go to so much theater and so so much high profile theater. I think you have a more you're more intellectually stimulated. Would you think that's true? Oh, I definitely do. And it's interesting that you say that because uh, often when I'm casting, I'm able to know people that most of the people who came from anywhere else but New York never heard of or didn't know. Oh, they real they did theater? That person did theater? Yeah, they did theater because I watched them uh, come up. I remember going to a uh, a comedy about a, a, a bathhouse, a gay bathhouse. 50, almost 50 years ago, starring Jack Weston, Rita Moreno, and Jerry Stiller. But there was a young guy in a in a little towel running around and uh, a featured player playing a gay man, which he was not, as I found out later. And nine years later, that fellow won the Academy Award for Best Actor, and that was F. Murray Abraham. Wow. Wow. I will so always remember him as the... The villainous Salieri. Salieri. Um, yes. Absolutely. Uh, I love F. Murray. I know he's a friend of yours. In fact, I just saw him in the second season of uh, White Lotus. Oh, yes. This is a whole big thing for him now. It really is working out well. But it's interesting, Steve, when you mention New York and L.A., I always thought that London, unfortunately, had it over us here. Because in, in London, you could do television, theater and film in the same city. And that would have been great if we could have that either in New York or LA, because sure. that's that makes it much easier. Every time I have to bring someone in from LA, I get killed with the plane fares and the per diems and the hotel or apartments you have to get. And it would be so much nicer for them to go home and for me not to pay. <laughs> now, let, Your book's subtitle is A Producer's Life. And the term producer, most people don't understand what a producer does. I also would think that it, the the amount of people getting producer credits or types of producer credits 
has become exponentially ridiculous. I mean, I was watching uh, the credits for a movie recently, an independent movie. They had 51 producers on it, which I think is probably a Guinness record for the number of producers. But a typical movie now, it's not uncommon for 14 or 15 producers, which dilutes the value of producer. How do you feel about that? Well, I totally agree with you. Once again, I don't like this interview. We're going to keep agreeing with each other. On everything. <laughs> but, but it does dilute it. And a real producer, not the actor's manager, agent, girlfriend, uh, I mean, lawyer. It's so many different people get their names up there now. But a real producer finds the property, looks for the director that works with the property, gets involved in the casting, has to raise the money gets involved in the advertising, heads the advertising, the marketing, the publicity. That's what a real producer does. And I believe we are an endangered species. No, totally so. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, because you and I are, are, we're not exactly contemporaries. I think you're nine years older than me. But I think that um, we used to open the newspaper on, on a Friday or a Wednesday, and we'd see all the movies that were coming out. And invariably, we'd say, oh, I want to see that. I want to see that. I want to see that. I, of course, you don't open newspapers anymore because you don't see ads anymore in newspapers. They've disappeared like, uh, you know, like old cabbage. But um, I, I, there's nothing I want to see anymore. And I, I listen, I light a candle every time somebody makes a movie because I know how difficult it is. But what's going on with the movie business? What You observe these things. What do you think is happening to the movie business we've always loved? Well, I think what's happening is the fact, and it's not just streaming, of course, has changed everything, but before that, COVID and the vaccine and all the problems have changed that. But let's start at the first part. The first part is movies are basically being made for young men. That's what's happening. The biggest hits, if you look back, most of them are for young men, whether it's X-Men or Men in Black or whatever. You know, whatever. Uh, the films that you and I would want to see are few and far between. What's even more amazing, Steve, to me, is the fact that I have 240 channels and I can't find something I want to watch at night. I mean, that's absurd. When, you know, we all grew up in New York even with only five or six channels and most of the cities in the United States had three. But now we have hundreds and we can't find something. The films that are being made today, sadly, are not the kind of films that you and I want. However, what's taken over a bit are some of the miniseries, some of the extended series that really have some uh, mature, intelligent themes that make you want to, hey, what's going to happen next week? Uh, so it's a, it's a changing business. It's very volatile, and it always has been. Look at all these people who lost their job when sound sound came in. You know, we had actors who could speak beautifully, but many could not in silent film. They didn't have to. As long as they could sneer or grimace or whatever, they would have a job. The second they had to speak, it was all over. Even though they say that was happened to John Gilbert, it's not totally true, but we don't want to get into that. That's going back to the Prontosaurus age. Well, we do remember Lena Lamont and... Oh, yes. Singing I rain. certainly do. <laughs> I Gene Hagen. I meet more. I meet more. I, I make more money than Calvin Coolidge puts together. <laughs> <laughs> that may be, in my estimation, the number one greatest musical ever made. That's how I feel. 
Oh, I agree completely. I, 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 I taught a, I taught a film publicity class at UCLA in their extension department. And I would always start my class by showing the first 10 minutes of singing in the rain, because it was like epitomized. Why are we in this business? This is show business. And when, um, when the PR guy comes over to Lena Lamanov, she comes off to the stage in that first sequence, uh, he, they're talking about PR, and which is, of course, what the course was about. And if you don't love movies, you shouldn't be in PR. That's, that's now, for sure. Now, you and I are kindred spirits because we both grew up near movie theaters. Uh, I, you, you talk about in your book, The King's Bridge in King's Bridge Road. And I had the stadium on Pico and um, and Robertson, which is now a temple. Uh, by the way, is the King's Bridge still there? It, the skiing bridge has been gone for years. It's, it was last time I checked an associated food store. Oh, okay, okay. So you you um were probably starting to go to the movies. I would think between seven and eight, about that uh, time. Yeah, and maybe even a little earlier. A little earlier. Uh, my dad my uh, my dad took me to see the very first movie I ever saw was A Night in Casablanca. It was the last movie the Marx Brothers made where they were all together. There's a they they uh, you know there were a couple of cameos where where uh, Groucho came in after that, but the 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 first one were those those th where they were all three were there from the beginning to the end. And uh, ironically enough, and it's just amazing to me if someone put this in a movie, you and I would say take it out. It doesn't work. I ended up buying that movie. I bought the negative to a night in Casablanca for the world. I mean, really? it, I, and I'll, to me, that is one of the great Laurent, you know, it just came around and look at that. I owned it for, I don't know, 30 years. And it wasn't copyrighted by the studio. It was, it wasn't a studio movie. You see, there were a lot of movies the, that studios distributed, but didn't own. And oh. United Artists was very well known for that initially before Krim and Benjamin took over. They would get movies, they would pick them up, they would distribute them for a certain period. But this this had reverted to the producer's family, a, a Lowe, in fact, and Marcus Lowe's son or grandson, and he owned it, and he was getting old and uh, uh, older, and I negotiated and, and bought the movie. But it was interesting, Steve, that you say that. Elia Kazan made a deal where he got three movies back from Warner's after 10 years. Hitchcock had many of his movies that he owned. Lou Wasman made that deal for him. Uh, uh, Bob Hope made movies and they reverted to him. So it's not as unusual as it seems. It's just not public. But now it is with you. <laughs> I know when you make a deal for a movie now with the streamers, they want everything in perpetuity so that that's right. Probably hard to own that kind of stuff like that. So the first movie you saw was A Night in Casablanca. Um, mm. I, I assume that a lot of kids who went to the movies for the first time in the 50s probably saw Disney movies as well, cartoons, you know, Snow oh, White. Oh, yes. I, 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 my grandmother took me to see Bambi, and when they shot the mother, I burst out into tears, and we had to leave the theater because I was inconsolable. The concept, I, I always wonder, what the hell was Disney thinking? Shoot the mother of Bambi? You know, uh, I, 
I, I don't there's know. Not much to say, Steve. After that, there's not much to say after that. Disney has a tendency to not like both parents in the picture. One's got to be gone for some reason or another. <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> now you you, uh, you have such uh, an interesting career trajectory. Um, you were a college student, and you were booking films for the local. Uh, student union, and you actually got into trouble because you were actually making money at it, right? Well, what happened was, no, I wasn't booking films. I booked a film. That was the beginning and end of my career. <laughs> they got so mad at me because I, I booked the theater and I charged the money and I kept the money and they got really angry at that. So I had to make a contribution and also was told never come to book the theater again. <laughs> <laughs> See, they weren't they didn't believe in entrepreneurial spirit in those days, I guess. Uh, they certainly didn't believe in my entrepreneurial spirit. I don't know about anybody else's, but there's no question. Yeah, it was a blackboard jungle. I had figured out that in the eighth grade, for the first time in my life, I was gonna cut class to see Blackboard Jungle at the Lowe's Paradise, which was the Bronx Theater. It was the Radio City Music Hall of the Bronx. And I convinced three classmates to come with me. We all cut class. And I started figuring out that I'm, hmm, a lot of these kids in school were too young to have seen that movie, hasn't played television. So I rented it for $25 on a 16 millimeter. And we did thousands of dollars. We, we turned people away. We had to have a second show. Uh, and that was another thing I got into trouble with. Not only was I charging money, but I also had a second unauthorized show which I did. So you were quite a rebel, weren't you? Uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, not certainly not like the wild one, not like Brando. Not like Brando. <laughs> you you got to wear those sunglasses and look very cool. And uh, that, and that uh, the motorcycle jacket. By the way, you mentioned literally hundreds of people in your book of people you've met over the years. You do not mention Brando. Had you ever met Brando? No, I never met him, never spoke to him. Well, I actually once did speak to him. Uh, he, he was making out he was someone else, but he was trying to reach uh, my dear friend, Elaine May, who, oh. who was, you know, the I always say she might be the Greta Garbo of her time because she doesn't really do publicity and doesn't do television, radio. They always are asking for her. And he wanted her to write something, but he made out he was someone else. But I, 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 I realized after we hung up that I was talking to him, but and yeah, it never came to pass. He uh, he never he and Elaine never did speak. I had a funny moment once when I was working at a production company in L.A. and I got a call. Uh, we one of our producers was Noah Dietrich, who used to work for Howard Hughes. And the phone call comes in. It's Cornell Wilde, and I was a big fan of Cornell Wilde, but I was convinced it was a buddy of mine faking his voice. Yes. So I'm, I'm giving Cornell Wilde all this guff about not bothering me, Jeff. It turned out it was, really was <laughs> Cornell Wilde. <laughs> uh, you got to be careful how you answer the phone. Um, especially in those days. Especially, especially in those days. Yeah. No, no, exactly. Um, um, the Walter, you were involved with the Walter Reed organization. That's where you started. You you started working in the company, and then you became their film buyer at a very young age. Can you talk a little bit of how you made that jump? Because this is a very important position to be going from a worker to suddenly an overseer. Well, let me say that I started at the ABC Network, 
uh, and that was my first job and uh, uh, making $90 a week. And uh, I was promoted in 10 months to the so-called head of the department at $125 a week, which was unheard of raise at ABC at that time. But what happened was, Steve, I would train young men to come in and they were on time and a half for overtime. So young people who had no idea about the job were making more money than I made at the end of the week. So I went in to the bosses and I said, you know, there's something a little bit awry here. I don't like the concept that I'm teaching people who know nothing at the end of the week. You, They, they make more. And they both said, well, you're a manager now. <laughs> kind of like a strange way of looking at it. But anyhow, that that convinced me that it was time to leave. I didn't tell them, and I waited, and I got to this company, Walter Reed. However, I got to them in the television syndication business initially, and I loved that because I was able to travel the country to the smallest cities, and they had multi-million dollar television stations. Even the smallest town, and I'm talking about towns like Waterloo, Iowa, Westlaco, Texas, Pembina, North Dakota, all of them would have the tower, which cost a lot of money. And I tried to sell quality movies to them. I became, Steve, a bit of a zealot. I had Room at the Top. I had David and Lisa, The Red Shoes, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, Tales of Hoffman, The Mark, quality, wonderful movies that never played these towns theatrically, so I felt if I could sell them to television, I would be uplifting the programming of this town or city. And so I became a bit of a fanatic, and, and I did make sales to the point that Walter Reed, who was alive at that point, picked up the phone and said, I've been all over the country. I don't believe there's a Waterloo, Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> but after a while, to get back to your question when we were both much younger, uh, after a while, I got really kind of depressed going around the country, talking to people who were program directors who never knew anything about movies, because you'd sell by a list. You didn't go in and they would screen the movies. You had packages and they would go down the list and look at the package and say, oh, I'll take this package. I don't want that package or whatever. And and uh, I felt this is getting, you know, David and Lisa, which you may remember, was a terrific movie. Time magazine called it the best American film of 1962. And a woman in Beaumont, Texas said, well, I can't play the sex movie. I said, sex movie? <laughs> this is about two mentally challenged young kids. Okay. Or in Green Bay, Wisconsin, when... Uh, he went down a list and he said, hmm, Ballad of a Soldier. You know, I can't play that. And Ballad of a Soldier was a brilliant Russian movie, won every kind of award. So I figured he's not going to play it because it's communist and commie and commie. But what the hell? I said, why can't you play it? Why can't you play Ballad of a Soldier? He said, because musicals drop dead in this market. <laughs> so... Finally, I decided I got to get out of it. I can't do this. I can't take this much more. But Walter Reed had a lot of very important movie theaters throughout the United States. And I asked if I could transfer to that department with the two men that I had become friendly with. And, and they said, yes, but it's a lateral move, meaning 
they weren't going to give me five dollars more than what I had been making. But I was willing to do it. And and I guess this is where when people talk about luck, this is where luck happens. So I have two bosses and I'm the third. The big boss decides to get involved with Edmund Muskie, who's running for president, and he quits. The second boss gets hired by Lowe's and he quits. And Walter Reed calls me in and says, you're going to get a boss, but you'll be number two. And I'm crazy enough to say, oh, no, I want to be number one. He said, you're a kid. You don't have any experience. If you don't make it, I'm going to fire you. I said, fire me, but let me try. Now, I, Steve, honestly, as I'm telling you this, I have goosebumps. <laughs> what? The, who does such a thing? But I was 26 and a half. <laughs> At 27 years old, I took over this 80 theater chain. And we were in New York. We were the, the powerhouse because we had four theaters on Broadway, over a thousand seats each, and seven on the east side, including the theaters that everyone wanted, Baronet and the Coronet. Uh, and so what happened in those days, you may remember, you didn't open 2,000 theaters. You opened one or two, and you sometimes played a year in this one theater. So uh, a lot of people were coming after the theaters I represented. And I was wined and dined, but I promise you, there wasn't one moment that I didn't think it was about the theaters and not me. <laughs> so you went from essentially a seller to kind of a buyer because you were- uh, Absolutely. I went buyer. from, I, I did exactly what I did. I, I went from a seller to a buyer. And if there was a third thing, I would have tried that. Because the movies that Walter Reed was sending you into the boonies to promote are, are pretty much art films in a sense. They're not typical popcorn movies. But as a, as the theater buyer, you're buying, uh, I guess you're buying comedies, dramas, thrillers, everything. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. The, it, at Walter Reed, I was buying from every studio, all the studios, the biggest films like, oh, like Midnight Cowboy or, I mean, there were so many at that time, M.A.S.H., I remember MASH, I snuck MASH, and people were running out of the theater because of the operations with the blood. Uh, it was really interesting. We And 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 Altman didn't cut much. He cut a little because he saw people running out of the theater. It gave him a definite hint that there might be a problem. Uh, but I had that with when I was at Paramount with Marathon Man. If you think the dentist scene is tough that you've seen, you should have seen what John Schlesinger and Olivier did originally before oh. <laughs> we trimmed it so really? there are, is there it are. safe is it safe you've got it that you've got it and uh it was not safe to be uh, uh in a movie theater when that film was snuck you'd be knocked out as people ran up the aisles it's funny you should mention that because um, i was telling my wife the other day whenever you see an operation sequence in a movie or a tv show they got to go into the body and start cutting and there's blood I don't understand why, you know, I, I completely understand the guy's going through an operation, but do I need to see the opening of the flesh like that? It's a, sometimes it's a little too much. It, I think it's always too much for me, but again, we're maybe we're just squeamish fellows. I, I think so. I think, although I can watch a Sam Peckinpah wild bunch where people are getting machine gunned every two minutes. I have no problems. With that. <laughs> well, you love world war two movies. Exactly. Exactly. You're okay yeah. with that. I'm I'm totally okay with that. Um, now the time the time you're starting to buy for Walter Reed for the theater chain, 
Woody Allen's becoming a big player. And I know that you have involvement with Woody later on in several ways. Obviously, you were probably buying a lot of Woody Allen movies, I would think. Well, it's a very interesting story, or at least it is to me. I will find out if people are falling in their soup. But but he his first movie was called, the first one that the public knew was called Take the Money and Run. And it was a cute little movie and did a little business. And uh, it played what was called the 68th Street Playhouse in New York. Uh, I was very close with the people at United Artists. And I got a call from the head of sales who said, look, you're young. With one of the few times they weren't making fun of me being young, which is the reason I have this beard. I grew it. Well, the beard's older than most people now, but I grew it <laughs> to be a little older. He said, we have a movie we don't know what the hell to do with. Will you come and look at it? And I said, sure. And it was bananas. And I said, this is terrific. And he said, it is? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'll give you the coronet. Well, giving it was either the cinema one or the coronet. You couldn't get better. It was like the village or the national or, you know, the, the, these are the best theaters in the city. And uh, and uh, I gave them the coronet. And that as it changed the projectile of Woody because the 68th Street Playhouse was a small theater. It did a little business, but bananas, it went crazy. And by the time we did everything, everything you wanted to know about sex, it just exploded. So in a way, I didn't know Woody then, but in a way that that really made a difference in his in his career and certainly did in mine because I was getting hot as a film buyer because sure. I discovered I discovered a, a comedian that a lot of people knew I wasn't really discovering him at all. About the same time, and I, this is an area which I'm very familiar with because I've written several books on the subject. You did the James Bond movies. You probably booked those into your theaters, and those were always events. Yeah, we did Goldfinger at the DeMille Theater, and we ran it 24 hours a day. It never stopped playing. So, it, it, yeah, it, it, that, that whole period was probably, in many ways, I'm doing a second book, Steve. And and in it, I, I I I remind myself, and therefore maybe the reader, that for all the nine years I was on radio, and I was on from eight to midnight, so it was a lot of hours. I I would ask the most famous people, what was the highlight of your career? What would you consider looking back professionally? Always ask that, and I never did that. So I thought I'd ask myself in the book, what what was the highlight, you know, of your career, and really it was in many ways doing the radio show concurrently with being the hot, running the Walter Reed theaters so it, it, you know to do the to do that together was great as they say these days symmetry because often i could get stars to come on because of my role at Walter Reed uh so that was the happiest time when i was working for other people but it, but after after a while uh, I opened up my own company, and then from that time on, uh, which is uh, almost 50 years, I've been independent. I, I don't work for anyone, or maybe for everyone instead. Do you remember who your very first guest was on your movie? Talk I do. Show? Stephen J. Friedman, who had produced The Last Picture Show. Uh, and he now is coming out with a new movie directed by Sidney Lumet called Loving Molly. A lot of people never heard of it. It had Bo Bridges and Jeff, not uh, Bo Bridges, but it was introducing a woman named Sa Susan Sarandon. <laughs> oh, wow. So I do remember that. I do remember the first, but the most exciting was my fifth or sixth guest 
was Rex Harrison. Oh my golly. And he didn't do interviews, but his he only had one stipulation. He would come 10 minutes early and I would give him the questions. Now, what he didn't know was I, I didn't need any questions because I knew, as you do, you know people's career. But I had him typed up and he came in and he looked down and he took it and he threw it over and says, oh, this is fine. Let's go. And, and off we went. He was worried about being asked about, you know, Carol Landis's killings and all the things that all the garbage he had been had gone through. Uh, so I think he was worried I'd ask that. But it's I had so no funny you should mention Carol Landis because I remember her vividly working with Lloyd Nolan in a wartime movie called Manila Calling. Carol Landis, did she die under mysterious circumstances? I think so. I oh, think wow. so. I'm, yeah, I mean, we know we know Carol Lombard died, but it wasn't mysterious. It was a plane crash. Plane crash. Yeah, but so your Carol... guess, your guests actually came to you in a studio. Oh yes, absolutely. Everybody came to the studio, um, and it was great because it was Bob Hope and George Burns and John Huston and Bette Davis. I mean, I was sitting there, Steve, truly in hog heaven. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that I'd be sitting talking to these icons. And they got a kick out of the fact that I had no notes, none. Because <laughs> you loved loved what they did. Now, uh, you mentioned the last picture show. Did you ever interview Peter Bogdanovich? Peter Bogdanovich, besides interviewing him, was a personal friend. Oh. Uh, and and he loved me for one. <laughs> he got a kick out of me for one reason. Uh, when he got hot, they started writing about how arrogant he had become and that he had, had gone to his head, whatever it might be. And they came to me and they said, Peter Bogdanovich has mentioned you that you knew him before he was successful. I said, yeah, he was arrogant then. <laughs> Peter loved it. He thought that was great. I said, it's nothing to do with his success. He always was this way. <laughs> but he was a lovely guy and, and very talented and, and like both of us, a, a real fan of the movies. Well, and Ford and... Much of well, what he the, the thing is, I often worry that the keepers of the flame are disappearing. The people who really appreciate the history. When I was working as a film publicist back publicist back in the eighties, when the AIDS uh, epidemic began, we were using lo losing a lot of publicists to the to AIDS, and I I saw these people who lived and breathed movies and classic movies. And then, of course, Robert Osborne on the, the Turner Music, the Turner Movie Channel, he passed away. So it's up to you and I and a few good other people like Leonard Maltin to keep the flame going here. Because film history, there's so much history. I I don't know what I, I don't know why, but my kids didn't want to watch black and white films. They thought that was just old business. It's true. It's uh, black and white films have had a tough time of it. That's why for a while, remember, Ted Turner colorized them. Thank goodness that did not last long. Yeah, that, the, the joke that, at that time was he was going to go colorize the first 20 minutes of The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was more like a joke. Um, would, no, no, but it would be great if then the, the rest would be black and white. That would really um, mess up. <laughs> um, the other actor that you've had, you, know, I, you have so many friends who are actors, and I'm very envious because I could spend an entire day just chatting to people, you were very close with Charles Grodin. Yes. Charles Grodin, to me, 
uh, in a film that Elaine May directed based on Neil Simon's screenplay, The Heartbreak Kid, is one of the funniest, saddest movies ever made. And it's interesting because, and I, I, I've heard lately that it's somewhat disappeared because there's some legal problems with it, or perhaps they haven't preserved the negative properly. Have you heard anything? I know a lot about it. Uh, Bristol Myers financed the movie. A fellow named Edgar Sherrick, who had been the head of uh, ABC programming, formed his own company called Palomar. And Palomar Pictures made uh, many movies. The two biggest was Sleuth and Heartbreak Kid, the sleuth with Olivier and Michael Caine. Uh, whatever the reason Bristol Myers has, they don't want this film to be distributed. I have no idea. When Neil was alive, Neil Simon, I got Neil and Elaine and myself to write to the people at Bristol Myers to say, hey, let us have the movie. You don't want to do it. We'll pay you money. What do you want? But they wouldn't release it. They wouldn't give it to us. There's no legal problem that I know of. I, I can't. I'm not a lawyer, but I certainly Neil and Elaine wanted it out there. I don't know why. I really don't. But Charles Grodin was a dear friend, and we did a lot of stuff together. I produced a play that he wrote called The Co-op Chronicles. But my favorite story about Chuck that I love was that he would go on, as you remember, the Carson show and really go after Johnny and really, you know, say, you know, you don't want to socialize with anyone. You're kind of a, you know, a recluse and you don't. And Carson would get upset, supposedly. But it was all in fun. But the audience not being the swiftest, some of them real upset that he would do that. And so he said, what do you think I should do? I said, Chuck, do exactly what you're doing, but smile. You're so straight when you're doing it. And once he started smiling, it worked. So I felt great that I had given a note to a comic genius as an actor, and uh, it worked for him. Uh, he, was, he was a wonderful person and a lot of fun uh, and one of the great storytellers. It's so funny you should mention that because my guest last week uh, was the casting director, Joel Thurm. I don't know if you know Joel. Only Joel, the credit. The credit. Yeah, Joel was casting a home, um, Hill Street Blues, and Daniel Ch J. Travanti is cast as the police chief. And they weren't, weren't sure he would be sympathetic enough in the role. And Joel told me the same thing you just said. He told him to smile more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, great! It's, it's great. true, especially when people start taking you seriously, because he looked like he was annoyed with Carson when he really was playing around. You know, the other person you talk about in your book, interviewing on your radio show, was Irwin Shaw. Tell tell that story a little, because I have a personal connection to Irwin Shaw as well. Well, we should say that Irwin Shaw, among other things, a wonderful novelist, had written *The Young Lions*. That was right. one of his big books. And he was coming on to, to plug a new book. And he came in uh, during a commercial, as we bring them in during a commercial. And he was drunk. I mean, he was not just high. He was drunk. I, slurred, word, word. <laughs> I think to myself, oh, my God, I, I, I can't do this. But what am I going to do? I can't throw the guy out. He's, he's Erwin Shaw. So he sits down and I say, my guest tonight is Erwin Shaw, the Young Lions, and his new book is whatever it was. And he speaks beautifully. He speaks great. I don't know what happened to the drunk. There's a guy talking fine and doing well. 
We go to a commercial. He says, you see, I told you I could do it. What the? It was really <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde. It was no question it was Jekyll and Hyde. That was, that's very funny. I, I went for my book on combat films. I went to uh, Kloster, Switzerland to interview him. And oh. it's the first time in my life I was told that I could not make notes and I couldn't record the interview. So I basically huh. I'm having I'm having uh, 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 a tea with Shaw and I have to <laughs> memorize everything. He he um, he was a real character. The first thing he said to me was, who broke your nose? And I, <laughs> he thought I was a, a, an ex-boxer. Boxer. Because yeah. the, the, all those sequences in the Young Lions were uh, the what eventually became the Montgomery Cliff character keeps getting beaten up. Uh, yeah. It's based on the fact that Irwin Shaw was beaten up all through the South when he was in the army. Yes, but I, I told him I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sorry, Irwin. I fell on a railroad tracks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Steve. If we knew each other, then I would have said, "Put some paper in your pants." Excuse yourself after the first half hour. Run into the bathroom and write. Just keep <laughs> writing. <laughs> that sounds like Dustin Hoffman and all the president's men, where he's writing on all sorts of matchbook covers as he's getting that interview. That's right. That's right. So, um, you talk extensively, well, not extensively, but you talk uh, significantly in your book about how horrible it was to run Paramount Pictures under Barry Diller, and you know, you had for many years the thought that that running a studio would be a dream of yours, being able to uh, to chart the course of films uh, and buy the right films. And yet it was not, it sounds like you fell into a Machiavellian plot. Well, uh, it wasn't Barry because I really liked Barry Diller. Barry Diller was as smart, probably, no, I would say he's the smartest executive I ever met. We did have a very funny exchange once when I said, you know, Barry, I, I have I have a year left of my contract. Let me out. We pay every guy half 50 cents in the dollar. Let me go. And he said, no, I, I want you to stay here. But what why do you what's the matter? What what's so bad? I said, I'm diametrically opposed to everything you do here. And he said, diametrically. <laughs> he, could, he couldn't comprehend. He didn't mind I was opposed, but diametrically, no. It was this. It wasn't Paramount. It was this. Any studio, it would have been. It, it the idea to me. I I loved like you do movies, and I wanted to make them. And while making movies was a, obviously an important ingredient, the most important in any of these situations was perpetuating your power. That was the most important thing. And if you could go a little higher, and it wasn't just Paramount. That, that's where I was. But it was all the studios. That's what it was. And if you had to knock someone out of your way, even if you like them, you had to do it if you wanted to get ahead. Well, that kind of dog-eat-dog -dog world was not for me. And and it was water it was water that I could swim in because I was a kid from the Bronx. I I know I knew how to take a low road, but I chose to take the higher one. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And I and I wasn't successful because, as you pointed out, my background was really on quality movies. And so what I would find something that I really wanted to do, invariably, Barry would fairly ask me, how much do you think if this film is successful, we can do? And I would say, let's say 15 million or 20 at that time, which was a fair amount of money. He'd say, I don't I don't I, I'm swinging for the for the for the bleachers. I'm, I have to put every movie I have to do. I have to hope it's going to go all the way. 
And so that was, again, I was opposed to even that philosophy. I said, look, if we accept the fact that eight out of 10 of our movies are going to fail, because that's the deal in all studios, they're going to fail theatrically. I said, let me have a couple that'll make a couple of million to help pay the ones that are going to lose. No, you've got the wrong philosophy. And I and I did for a studio. He, he was right about that. I, I did. No, I had no problem with Barry. I liked Barry. And he, he and I... Really, I liked him. I was very respectful of him, but he wouldn't let me out of my contract. And that was uh, very frustrating for me. Now, as I recall, you had a deal where you spent some part of the uh, the month in New York as well. So you were kind of bi-coastal. Yes, I, that was my deal. I, uh, every For about a half hour, I had the Andy Warhol fame uh, in within the film business because I had taken the Ziegfeld Theater, which had been considered a white elephant, and uh, no one wanted to play it. And in one year, I made it the highest, by putting these movies in, it became the highest grossing theater in the country, except for the Radio City Musical. We did over $3 million in a year, an average of 60000 a week, which was enormous then. I had three movies in the in 52 weeks. That's Entertainment, uh, uh, Earthquake, and Tommy. Those were the three that lasted 52 weeks. Every studio wanted me. They figured I knew something, perhaps. Now, was that, were you still working for Reed at that time? Yes, I was working at Reed. and But every one of them said, you have to move to L.A. And I, and I wouldn't do it. And I guess another reason that Barry is who he is, he said, well, what do you want? I said, I want to live in New York and L.A. He said, all right. He said, "What? Wh how about two weeks and two weeks? I said, how about three and one? He said, all right, we'll do three and one. And that's what happened. That's how I became bi-coastal. And I had uh, the home that we talked about in Brentwood. Had Charlie Bluedorn sold the studio? Or no, it no, he was ahead of it. And in my new book, I take him to task. <laughs> right, right. And while everybody was, he was really, I mean, the Mel Brooks did beautiful when he, satirized him in engulf and in engulf and devour <laughs> was the name of, uh instead of gulf and western engulf and devour and uh he was a tough character and we did not get along and i uh had a couple of real doozies but i write about it in the next book in the new book do you have a title yeah. for the new book yet no no i i i this this book was hard enough to come up with a title it was real it was real tough and my agent, I, I finally had an agent, Steve. All my life, all my friends have agents, and I never did. I, my agent said, I like this chapter about you and Burt Reynolds. Uh, why don't you use that as the title? Because I, I didn't know Burt Reynolds, but I wanted him to come to Broadway to do a Larry Gilbart script, um, Sly Fox. Sly Fox. And, and I left a message on his tape, because he didn't pick up his phone, and it said, Hi, uh, Bert. Uh, my name is Julian Schlossberg. I'm a New York City producer. Try not to hold it against me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that and was she's... one of my favorite chapters in the book, talking about how difficult it was to cast Sly Fox. I mean, oh, you, you, for the listeners, um, we've been talking movies for the most part with Julian, but Julian has a long and very successful stage career. Uh, and I have to say that since I'm not really a, a stage person, I really enjoyed learning how you get a stage production going. I guess as a producer of film, as compared to a producer of theater, you still have the same issue of where do you find the money? 
And you know, it's, al it's always what I call the tin cup theory. How do you go around and I it I would say it's the thing I detest. I, I, there are people who love doing it, and I have such admiration for it. I wish I could even like it, but I don't like it. And of course, the older I get, more the more my backers pass away. <laughs> so I'm really I'm really dancing as fast as I can right now. Um, but yes, um, it's the toughest part for me because uh, there's a lot of quality work that can be done. And I don't mind putting on shows that have limited chance uh, as long as I let the people who are backing it know that. But if it's quality, you, you want to kind of feel that you stand behind something that has some worth. And uh, I, I, I once worked, did a couple of things with Frank D. Gilroy, who uh, won the Pulitzer for the subject was Roses. He wrote a lot of other things. But he said, remember, Julian, on your tombstone, it's going to say quality was his undoing. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing about theater versus movies, if a movie bombs, there's still the possibility it can pick up a few bucks as a television distribution situation or foreign. With theater, you're really at the mercy of your opening. If, the, if, the, if you don't get the reviews and people don't go the first few weeks, you're dead. Absolutely. It's the it's so tough. It I always uh, when I'm lecturing around the world, I compare it to oil rigging. You know, every once in a while the the oil the oil comes flying up, but by and large you go down. Most of the time it doesn't happen. It's very tough theater, but it's also for me the most worthwhile in many ways because I have more control when you do a movie or a television show. You've got to go on 18 different locations. There's all kinds of problems with planes flying overhead or noise in the apartment below or whatever. In theater, you're in one location and you have the ability to kind of take it, uh, uh, have more to get involved with the project. With the movies, God, you're just hoping that that train doesn't derail. When a movie, you start a movie that the train takes off and you're going to just hold on. Because that movie is going to take a life of its own. It takes over in many cases. But in in theater, you, you don't have that. And, you know, even as a viewer, I always used to think, well, in, in, in movies and in television, the director is your eyes. He's showing you what he wants. You go to theater, you can watch the girl in the corner. You don't have to watch what's going on stage. You're the camera. And I always thought, hey, how interesting. You're the camera in theater only, not anything else. Well, you mentioned A Night in Casablanca and Blackboard Jungle being formative movies for your early life. What would you say was the uh, stage performance that really made you fall in love with live theater? Well, the very first one I ever saw was Mary Martin in Peter Pan. And I mean, I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. Hard to believe at that age, I was praying for Tinkerbell to live, but I was. <laughs> right now at 12 and 13, what the kids are doing, we don't even want to discuss. But I'm yelling for Tinkerbell. I believe, I believe. So that that really, I couldn't believe that I was watching Mary fly through the air and, uh, and Cyril Richard was an incredible Captain Hook. So I got hooked, so to speak. But the great performances that I've seen I saw Paul Muni in Inherit the Wind. I saw 
um, let's see, uh, Ian McKellen do Amadeus. Uh, this is on, on Broadway. You know, I saw George C. Scott's Death of a Salesman. Uh, yeah, I, I saw, I, I really saw great theater uh, growing up. Uh, an incredible performance of The Moon for the Misbegotten with Jason Robards and Colleen Dewhurst. I saw not good, I saw great theater. And now I'm afraid in many ways, and maybe this for an old guy talking, I don't know, but mediocrity is being hailed and it's very depressing to me because I, I, I don't see anything that compares to the theater I saw as a kid. And I don't see much on movies that compared to the movies I saw as a kid. But maybe everybody thinks that. Steve, I'll tell you one quick story. Forgive me for, for jumping on here, but go ahead, I think tell it, please. We both grew up, certainly I did, with the advent of rock and roll. And I loved the early days of rock and roll. My father would come in and say, How can you love Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, and Tony Martin, and this junk? So it seems to me that every generation or two has what they think was the better music the better film so i sound like i guess an an older guy saying it's not so great now but i do have the memories and i do write about it in in the book oh yeah uh, no definitely the yeah. um the thing that uh, seems to be affecting broadway as it is in the movie business is everybody's interested in reviving hits the originals it's very hard to get something original going because it doesn't have a pre-marketed element i mean in, in hollywood as I'm trying to sell movie projects, I constantly hear uh, we're only making remakes, sequels and prequels and heavy IP. And I literally had a meeting with a Paramount executive and he loved one of our comedies. And he told me that this is a perfect movie for for Netflix. This is a Paramount executive. I said, well, why isn't this a perfect movie for Paramount? He just reiterated what I just said. We make prequels, sequels, and heavy IP. Now, I think it also depends on who's selling. If of course. George, if George Clooney walked in the room, I'm sure his attitude would be a lot different. But it's That's very right. difficult. Well, Julian, we could talk all day and still not tap all the subjects in your book. Um, it's it's a very, really wonderful book, everybody. Once again, the title is Try Not to Hold It Against Me, A Producer's Life. And Julian has definitely led a producer's life in so many ways. And like like myself, he will continue to be a producer till he stops breathing, which hopefully we mean many years in the future. Well, thank you, Stephen. Thank you for the visit. And if somebody cancels at the last minute, give me a ring. Definitely. Everybody, you've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our guest has been Julian Schlossberg, who is definitely a deep well of, of memories and history and wonderful adventures. And I think I meant it that you've had more adventures than LeBron has had three pointers. I really believe that. Um, and we'll, we'll be talking soon, everybody. Take care.